We want to see you glorified as well as your church edified. And so we gather, Lord, and all of the thoughts, all of those things, Lord, that would steal away from thoughts on you and uh, what your will is for us, we just take them all captive and we bring them in obedience to you, Lord. Have your way tonight with us. Have your way with our hearts. Have your way with our future, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, would you open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 for a little bit of tonight's vision casting. And that's what this is. We're not formally starting a Wednesday night series yet or anything. Uh, It's certainly not line on line. Even though the sign says that behind me, we had to get the wrinkles out. So we, uh, we hung it out to dry this afternoon. But uh, we want to look at Acts chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 4 uh, briefly this evening uh, before we break up in prayer. Um, if you have a cell phone, now's a great time to turn it off. And before we get started tonight, I just thought as we were singing, it might be a good idea to just calm our hearts, still our hearts before the Lord to be still and know that He is God. So um, just ask the Lord to search your heart and in silence um, ask Him to do what He might want to do that maybe you didn't think uh, or, or have any kind of advance notice that He wanted to do. Just open your hearts and clear them before God. Confess anything that's on them and then we'll get started. Father, it was David who prayed, much like some of us have just prayed, that you would search our hearts and know them and see if there's anything in us that is wicked or displeasing to you and that you would from there lead us in the way everlasting. We pray that you would do that tonight. We pray for this fellowship as well as the fellowships in the area that you would do a mighty work of revival, Lord, in bringing people to know you and bringing those who know you into the center of your will. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a boy, I longed for the weekends. I went to school like we all did. But the weekends, that was freedom, with one exception. It was called church. I grew up not liking church. And church was to me what I had to do in order to do what I wanted to do. It was an obligation my parents laid upon me. In fact, in the circles that I grew up in, they even called it your Sunday obligation. It wasn't your uh, Sunday go to worship or something that you desired to do. It's something you had to do. And I looked at church as sort of like going to the dentist. 
It hurt. It was uncomfortable. The pews were hard. The kneelers, yes, we had them. They were hard. In 1973, I gave my life to Christ and things changed. And one of them was my outlook concerning the church, his body. From that point on, I wanted to live at church. There was such a fulfillment in being around God's people and searching God's word and getting fed and being filled. It was exciting. If you look in your New Testaments, you discover that the church is the only institution that God promises to build and to bless. That's quite a statement. It's the only institution that God promises to build and to bless. You know what Jesus said. He said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then it was Paul who spoke to Timothy and said that the church is the pillar and the ground of all truth. So it's the only institution God promised to build and to bless. Now tonight we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, not all of it, primarily verse 40 on down to verse 47. Um, If I were to ask you to define church... Now, some of you are savvy scripturally, so you already know what the answers are because you've been in some Bible studies or you've taken some courses. But the first word that would come to most people's minds when you mention the word church would probably be, number one, a place. They would think of a building. They would say, oh, this is the church. It's the building. People would drive by and say, that's my church. Um, That's the church I go to. It's a place where things happen. Recitals happen, weddings happen, funerals happen, concerts happen. To other people, they would immediately think of the word institution, the church in America, a corporate institution, an organization where perhaps in some people's minds, people in dark robes or suits and ties get together in rooms and have endless discussions. The New Testament uses the term church 118 times, always as a group of people. The most common word, ekklesia, means a group of called-out individuals. In its original Greek meaning, it was a legal assembly. In the Greek world, ekklesia was a legal assembly. A group of people got together to meet about town business normally. But as as you look through the New Testament, it is not a place primarily. It is not a group of policies primarily. Uh, It's not anything but a group of people that are tied together with something in common, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the vision for the church, we have to ask, what is his vision for his church? Because it's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. He's the one that said he would build it and he would bless it. So we want to find out what he's about, what he wants, what he does. Now, just uh, before we jump right in, by way of review, if anyone is new or you want to catch up from last week, uh, it wasn't broadcast live on the Internet and for a very good reason. We wanted to do some uh, family business last week. 
There are tapes and CDs that are available for those here who want them, but we wanted to talk frankly. And you just may not know this yet, but people from all over the world watch that Internet broadcast. That doesn't mean the entire world watches it, but people from all over the world, all over the states, watch in. So tonight some of them are actually listening, and you might want to just welcome them and say hi to them because there you go. Give them a big clap. Just by way of review, we talked briefly about some of the misinformation going around, and we made a kind of a covenant between us that we would not entertain gossip but go right to the source and deal openly and honestly. Um, we, we spoke about the fact that outside ministry consultants in the past uh, have examined this fellowship and determined that it was a group of silo ministries and that we don't want to do that anymore. We want to have something that is unified and be on the same page and bring a spiritual sense of unity to the church. And we spoke about the difference between healthy division and divisiveness. Divisiveness that comes from 1 Corinthians 3, carnality, and uh, James chapter 4, greed. And I think we also made the agreement, did we not, considering the book of Titus chapter 3, that we would not allow divisiveness to poison us any longer. That that anyone who would want to spread that wouldn't be tolerated because it says in Titus chapter 3, a divisive man after the first and the second admonition reject. So those that are divisive, warn them once, warn them twice, and then reject, according to the New Testament. So we want to bring rebuke where rebuke is needed and healing balm where that is needed. Well, let's, let's go to verse 40 and read our text. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, that is Peter who's preaching, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Tonight, we don't want to look at the past. And we mentioned that the past is the past, and we want to look to the future. Several years ago, oh, maybe seven or so uh, I had John MacArthur out in Albuquerque just to do a midweek study, and uh, he'd been out there a couple times, and we were just talking about the growth of of the church and uh, kind of comparing notes and visions, etc. You know, John took over a church called Grace Community Church, uh, a little bit north of here, and it had also a long history, and then John came in, and John said something interesting to me. He said, 
I think, Skip, that the first 10 years of the church are the most exciting. And I said, yeah, I, I can see that because there's that sense of common vision, uh, the sense of excitement. You're building something. It's new. You're discovering people's gifts. They're cooperating together and you're watching people come to Christ and you're just seeing something birth and, and grow coming to fruition. It's great to see it grow up. It also grows old as it grows up. And that's why he gave it that 10-year mark. He said, you know, after 10 years, it's just something I've observed in churches around the country that often that excitement tends to go down. Well, how about another covenant together? Let's make a covenant that we're going to pretend and it's going to become reality that we're starting all over again. It's fresh. It's brand new. The history's great, but it's a new start. It's like we all just sort of came to this place and God gave us this great property and now we're going to build from scratch. We're going to start all over again. Here's the question. Where do we look to find the proper model? In other words, if we're going to look at the future of the church, of all the churches we could look at, what do we want to model this church after? Do we look historically as some do? You see, we could look back through the annals of church history and some will do that and then stop, sort of freeze frame and model it after something in the past. Some will model their church after the Reformation. And so it goes no further than Reformation theology. And uh, it would be something that is based upon the works of Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc., Zwingli and a few others. Uh, or should we look at the Moravian movement and try to uh, model it after that, that great missions movement? Others will look at contemporary models. They'll look around the landscape of America and say, okay, where are the large churches? And we sometimes think numbers equal success. So if there's a lot of people, it must be successful. Therefore, we must model it after the numbers and the success. Now, there may be some truth to that. We can't just wipe it away and discount it. But you can't always go by numbers as being successful because uh, if you do, then you have to exalt the Muslim religion. It's the fastest growing one in all the earth. So it's not just all about numbers. In fact, when I was in India one time, I'll never forget a conversation I heard. I was with two brothers who were talking about the numbers of their own ministries and how many people were coming to hear them and the great things they were doing and how many were baptized and how many were saved. And as they were talking, another older, more seasoned saint came over to them and put his arm on both of them and said, Brothers, it is time to stop living in the book of Numbers. We must start living in the book of Acts. So it's not all top growth. Top growth can never be sustained unless there's root growth. You have to go downward and get solidified. Otherwise, the first wind that comes along, all of that top growth will be washed away, wiped away. So then, we're back to that question. Where do we find the proper model for his church? Since Jesus said, it's my church and I will build it and I will bless it, there's only one logical starting point, and there's only one logical reference point, and it is the book of Acts. Now, you could say it's the, the Bible, the New Testament, it's the church in the New Testament, but be careful, 
Because I would say, which one? You know, the church of Corinth is a New Testament church. I don't want to model it after them. They had problem after problem. All of 1 Corinthians was written to tackle an enormous amount of problems in that church. You could say, well, I want to model it after the church of Ephesus. That's the church that left its first love. You could say, I want to model it after the church of Philadelphia. That's the church that had just a little strength, Jesus said. You could say, I want to model it after the church of Thyatira. No, you don't. Or Laodicea. Uh Uh-uh. You want to go back to the beginning, to the book of Acts. Now, we've opened up to the second chapter, and we immediately read of a a great outpouring of God's Spirit. Thousands of people have come to Christ. Peter's out there preaching on the day of Pentecost. Signs and wonders have just happened. I think Peter is blown away. I think he's taken aback. Because it says in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Um, Go over to verse 4. I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 4. I want to show you something. As they spoke to the people... The priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them and being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men, notice they're not even counting the women at this point, So you can add more women and probably young people to this. The number of the men came to be about 5,000. We have 3,000. Now we have 5,000 more. Now go over to chapter 5. In verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all in one accord in Solomon's porch. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Go over to chapter 6. Verse 7, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, I'm pointing this out for a reason. Though you can't necessarily go by the numbers, it is also true that in the book of Acts, the churches, even in the midst of great persecution, always grew numerically. They were added to by the Lord. Uh, He added more to them. Then we read the words multiplied, multiplied, added, multiplied. And you see this as a pattern throughout the book of Acts. The Lord adds daily those that should be saved. Conservative estimates that I have read by New Testament scholars would estimate the church in the book of Acts in Jerusalem alone within the first several months to be about 25,000 strong. 25,000 strong. Now keep that in mind because along with that, it says they all had fellowship. They all had deep, intimate koinonia with each other. Even though the church was huge, there was an intimacy that the church didn't lose. But imagine being Peter. 
preaching a message. We saw 30 people come to faith on Easter Sunday. It was exciting to see people birthed into the kingdom. Okay, but imagine Peter. He's giving an altar call, and let's say he did it sort of like we did it, and he's out there in Jerusalem. I wonder how many would want to receive Christ. And raise your hand. Whoa! 3,000 of them. And then in another time, 5,000 of them. Where do you baptize a group that big? What kind of new believers counseling and follow-up and home groups do you need for that kind of group? What kind of infrastructure would, would you have to have? We used to have people come to our church in Albuquerque and they were researchers, observers of church growth. And I remember some of them sometimes would come to me and say, what we have seen here in Albuquerque with this explosive growth is phenomenal. And I think I took them off guard because I would say, you're wrong. It's normal. If I'm reading my New Testament, it's normal. If I'm looking at the landscape of what happens in America, the average church is 100 to 150 people, then it would be phenomenal. But according to the New Testament, it's not phenomenal. It's normal. Every time God does the work, He adds to the work. He adds those that should be saved. There's this constant inflow of new believers as older believers are being trained and sent out and discipling others and doing evangelism. Okay, let's go back then to Acts chapter 2. The church is born. The church is growing. There's a massive movement afoot. Now you are about to read the first, the very first, organizational statement of the church in history. And it's very simple. It's in Acts 2.42. And they, the church, the people, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Four ingredients are mentioned. I'm not going to go through all of them tonight. But four ingredients are mentioned in one verse. In the entirety of the paragraph, there are more than four ingredients. There are more activities the church did. There's public proclamation, preaching, evangelism. There's home fellowship. There's the ordinances of baptism and uh, of the Lord's Supper. There's corporate prayer, praise, all sorts of ingredients. But I believe that you could sum up all of the activities of the church into three words and find all of these things in one of three categories. Upreach, inreach, and outreach. You could take every activity that we just noticed in this paragraph and fit it into one of those categories. Upreach, our relationship with God, relationship of uh, hearing what God wants to tell us in His Word, responding to that in worship and a relationship with Him. That's upreach. That's one-on-one with God. Followed by inreach, discovering the variety of gifts that each member of the body has, using them to build each other up in the faith. And then outreach. A strong body is never an ingrown body. It's a body that has its sights on the world and there is outreach. And you have all of those, I believe, in those three categories. In fact, let's just go through the paragraph and try to, try to peg them in there. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's outreach. And those who were gladly 
who gladly received his word were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I'm going to say that's upreach because God is instructing us how to relate to him. It's his word into our hearts that causes a response. And fellowship. I'd put that in the in-reach category. And the breaking of bread and prayers. I'd put both of those in that same second category. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. I'm going to put that in the outreach category because the effect was for the world in this case. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. Put that in the inreach category. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, again in the inreach category, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. I put that in the upreach having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I put that in the outreach category. Upreach. I want to talk about that tonight. I want to talk about our relationship to God as a church. Next week, I want to talk about inreach, how the body discovers one another's gifts, how we disciple one another, the place of home groups, the place of other groups in the church, and how they all integrate together. And then finally, the third and last installment will be Outreach, evangelism. What is upreach? What do I mean by that? I mean that we know Christ and we open up his word and as we go through his word, we discover what he wants. And as we discover what he wants, we conform to what he wants. We respond to what he wants. We worship him based upon what we learn from him. So it's a perfect cycle of communication. I'm hearing from him through his word. I'm responding to him according to his word in worship and in activity. But everything stems from that first relationship with God. Unless I have a solid relationship with God where I hear his word and have a relationship of praise and worship, all of my ability to reach out to you will be minimized My ability to reach out to the world with a message will be minimized. If I'm weak and anemic in my relationship to God personally, I'm not going to have much to offer you, nor will I have a message for the world. So upreach, my relationship with Christ one-on-one. Now, there is a false dichotomy I just want to touch on. I've heard it in the language of many Christians throughout the years. The false dichotomy between... Worship and the Word of God. Statements like this. Well, now that we're done worshiping, we're going to open our Bibles and get into the Word. As if we've stopped worshiping once you open your Bibles. That's false. Worship isn't just singing songs with a group of people. That's a part of worship. It's a great part of worship. It's very emotive. It's very consoling. It's very exhortive. It's very powerful. But it's only one part of it. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not just a singular activity of having guitar or organ or piano or drums. We worship by music. We worship by listening to the Word of God. I submit to you, it's a harder discipline in worship than singing. Because it's easy to talk. 
You know, it's easy to sing. It's easy for me to do all the stuff. It's hard to listen. You know, we often tell our kids, now listen. Don't always talk when I'm talking to you. I want you to listen to me. And sometimes I think God would just say, shh, listen. And to listen to the Word of God as it's being taught or as you're reading it one-on-one, personally, is a powerful exercise of worship. Then we also worship by giving of our resources. That's a part of worship, giving of tithes and offering. That's not, not aside from the worship. It's a part of worship. So I think that's a false dichotomy. And uh, uh, I've even, I guess I get a little nervous when I've heard people say, oh, couldn't we just have a night of music and not Bible study? Ooh, that's a very telling statement. I'm all for a night of singing, but when you put it that way, what you're saying is that it's not all that important. It's good. Churches should at least preach from the Bible, but going through it and actually studying it all isn't that important because, well, have you heard this? I'm not into doctrine. I just want to love Jesus. Doctrine isn't all that important. What's really important is that we just love each other and love Jesus. That's a deplorable statement. Because you won't know how to love God and how to love one another unless you're taught from the Bible specifically what God wants you to do in loving one another and loving Him. Did you know the word doctrine is the Greek word didache, which simply means teaching, instruction, something wholesome and good that is instructive? So with that in mind, how does this statement say? Wholesome, solid instruction and teaching isn't important. I'm not into wholesome, solid instruction. I just want to love Jesus. Oh, well, when you put it that way, it's different, but that's what it means. The Bible, the New Testament, uses the term doctrine 33 times, always in a positive light. So notice what's first on the list. I'm I'm giving you this to go back to the list in 242. What's first on the list? And they devoted themselves to not singing first, though that's important, not giving of tithes first, though some preachers think that's most important. The first activity on their list, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the wholesome didache or instruction of the apostles. I want to read something to you that comes from Walt Kaiser's book. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives, all sorts of unnatural substitutes that have been served up to her. I've traveled to a lot of places in the world. And I have found many places, many churches, many assemblies, biblically illiterate. Biblically illiterate. Ask the average Christian, what's the theme of the book of Jeremiah? Jerahu? What was Habakkuk all about? Or Amos? Well, I don't know, but I know a couple Psalms. I know what Matthew is. I've seen Revelation before. One of my goals is to make us biblically literate. To know the Bible, all the Bible. 
Uh, the whole counsel of God. When I left Albuquerque after 22 years, I could say with a pure heart, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. All of it. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says something along these lines. Some of you are turning to it, so I hope I get it right. But he says, I charge you before God and our Lord Jesus Christ, who he says will come and bring judgment, judge the living and the dead at his, at his coming. Preach the word, he says to him. Preach the word. Be ready or instant. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, he says. Exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but they will heap to themselves, because they have itching ears, teachers that will tell them what they want to hear, basically. And they'll turn their ears aside into fables. Now, I think we need a balance. I'm a preacher of the word. Primarily, that's my central gift. However, when I speak about a balance, on one hand, some churches will emphasize all instruction without any application. When you do that, you really don't have a body of Christ. You have a a brain or you have a mouth, let's say. And it can be very cold and dry and informal because it's all instruction and no application. Then others will emphasize exhortation. You got to do this. You got to do that. What's wrong with you Christians? You need to love more. You need to witness more. And it's all exhortation without any infusion. Let me explain. It's all do this, do that without any of the power of the Holy Spirit that we need to carry it out. And if it's all exhortation and even instruction without infusion, you'll get out of balance. You know how? Because you'll sit there week after week as the pastor exhorts you to love more, exhorts you to witness more, exhorts you to be a better Christian, a more loving husband and wife, and you'll have a question mark. You'll go, yes, I know, but how? Teach me how, pastor. Tell me how I can love more. How can I witness more? Give me the tools to do it. So we need to balance instruction, application, exhortation, the infusion of the Holy Spirit. Third, some churches will emphasize all infusion without any foundation biblically. Let me explain. It's all you need, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to move, and let's operate in the gifts. Great. It's cool. It's important. But if it's not tied to solid biblical instruction, it will be superficial, at best emotional, and that group of people will be open prey for the enemy to sow anything he wants. They can be tossed around with every wind of doctrine. And I challenge you, go to those circles where it's all infusion without any solid biblical instruction. And you'll find them into every conceivable wacky idea that exists. Because they're not tied to anything solid and biblical. Number four, when I speak about balance, it's possible to emphasize instruction, uh, exhortation, Infusion, all of that stuff, 
application without evangelism. And you also have an imbalanced church. Because if it's all about me, us, we, it's not a healthy church. But this is our church, our community church. Listen, the church exists in the community to be a light to the community. We're to do evangelism. We see that in Acts 40, uh, 2, 40 and 41, and then verse 47. They did evangelism. The church becomes ingrown if it's all about my group, my church, my pastor, my instruction, my community, and we don't care that people are dying and going to hell. We've got to care enough to tell people the truth, to invite people to a place where they're going to hear the gospel or have a chance to receive Christ. The lifeblood of any church is new growth through evangelism. Not lateral growth. Not I left this church and I'm coming to that, that church. That happens. It's going to happen. But the healthiest growth is people coming to faith in Christ. And that's the balance that we see here in the book of Acts. Now, you're going to notice that. You've noticed it every Sunday. See that big, huge monstrosity back there? It's called a pulpit. And it's a big pulpit. And uh, interesting, we got a few notes. That pulpit's so big, one said angrily. A couple angry remarks that we put such a big pulpit in there. Well... I'm a big guy. I'm six foot five. And uh, it just fits me. It's like a nice shirt. You know, it's like a good suit of clothes. I I can get behind the pulpit. It's like sitting on my Harley. It just feels right. I can drive that. So I brought it with me. Um, We even got a couple complaints. At least one, not only is the pulpit big, but Skip's big. (laughs) Seriously. Just to let you know what can go on. I got a downside. Listen, I can't do a whole lot about that. I can sit, and I am sitting tonight, and it's a much smaller, diminutive pulpit. But, but let's get beyond that. There's a reason that the pulpit is front and center. It's not just a lectern for me. It's a statement. It's a symbol. It symbolizes the word of God is the tether of the church. That the church is pulpit-driven more than program-driven. Scripturally driven more than subjectively driven. It comes from the word. And so when people walk in, the first thing they see is the word of God is proclaimed. That pulpit is a statement. And so it's more than just having elect... Well, Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Um... There is a danger. Let me back up. I love the church. I love God's people. I love to see Christians get together. And what happens when Christians get together? What can happen when healthy Christians get together is really exciting. I do recognize that we're all imperfect. And so anytime you get a bunch of imperfect people together, you run a huge risk. In Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus stands in his hometown of Nazareth. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set it free those who are captives, to free those who are blind, brokenhearted. Go through that list. When you get a bunch of poor, blind, brokenhearted people in one place, it's messy. That's the church. We all need his help, his mercy, his grace. Therefore, when we come together, we want to maximize the time and have everything primarily centered around the Bible. Primarily. Everything comes from the apostles' doctrine. I find a flaw, an inherent flaw, in a seeker-modeled church, a seeker-friendly model. Let me explain. I'm not saying the church should be seeker-unfriendly. We should always be friendly. But I think that unbelievers should feel somewhat uncomfortable remaining sinners. I don't want to make an unbeliever feel comfortable and like, hey, this is great. I can sin and go all the way to hell but go to church at the same time. The Word of God, when it's taught properly, will comfort the afflicted and it will afflict the comfortable. It has that, it's a sharp two-edged sword. I find a basic contradiction in the term seeker church. You know why? There's no such thing as a seeker. The Bible says there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. People say, I'm seeking after God. No, you're not. God is seeking after you. I sat in a church that purported to be a seeker church a couple of occasions, and uh, I brought my Bible, and boy, did I stand out like a sore thumb. I was the only one in that crowd that had a Bible. Bibles were optional. When you come, please bring a Bible. We're not going to look at you funny or, or treat you weird, but, but bring a Bible. If you don't have one, buy one. Read it a lot. Mark it up. Use it a bunch. You know, somebody said uh, a Bible that is falling apart uh, usually belongs to somebody who's not. Now, that doesn't mean you go get your Bible and run it over with your car and thrash it so people go, man, he's spiritual. Use it, read it, mark it, write in it. It's a tool. Um, The church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is in danger because of the trends toward the seeker-friendly model to throw out the Word of God, to throw out songs that speak of the blood of Christ, etc. These are trends that are pervasive throughout the world. We are in danger of following our predecessors. If you go over to England, you see, by and large, an impotent church. To the admission of one of its leaders, George Carey, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Listen to what he said about the Anglican church. He said, The Anglican church is an old lady, an old lady muttering platitudes through teethless gums. I don't want to become that. But the powerful church of Jesus Christ is he intended, and that comes through the word. So go with me to Ephesians chapter four.
Some of this is in reach. Some of it is upreach. We'll mark on more of it next week. But look at verse 7. This is the results of uh, healthy upreach, worship, and the word together. But to each one of us, verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. In the Greek, it's one idea, one office, pastor slash teacher for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to that effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. There are some results of a healthy upreach, i.e., a relationship with God based upon his word. Number one, spiritual maturity. You notice that in verse 11. He gave this list of offices, gifted people to the church. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You can't grow beyond what you know. There's a little axiom for you. You can never grow beyond what you know. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He opens up that letter by saying, as he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, wherefore have been given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises that by these you may, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Therefore, he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. In that passage, acquiring biblical knowledge is alluded to four or five times. And he caps off his book by saying, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ignorance is not bliss as a Christian. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a principle that's not just for salvation. That happens every single time we read and respond rightly to the word of God. It sets us free. We learn something about the nature and character of God or the nature of man or spiritual warfare or how to handle other Christians or problem people. And that sets us free. So we want to grow in knowledge and it brings maturity. The second thing it will bring is spiritual unity. 
Remember that study that was done that we mentioned here of this church where the group said, you got a group of silo ministries and what would help unify it is to have corporate Bible study. Not individual groups as much as corporate Bible study and let things be uh, connected to that. We want to unify the church, be on the same page. Now we're going to talk about small groups more next time because I believe in them. Uh, We have always kept that as a vision in our church for the last 22, 23 years. It was from the very beginning, and we've tried to push that all the way through. But we learned something. We learned rather than having 25 different Bible studies going on during the week, how about less is more? How about taking a message that was given on a Sunday or on a Wednesday and then giving key questions to small group leaders and then let them apply those questions, those issues, apply the message already preached in a home environment? It will do something. It will fortify what was heard. You know why that's important? Here's a, um, here's a horrible statistic. And if you're a Bible teacher or a Sunday school teacher or you lead a small group, this is the worst statistic you're ever going to hear. The human mind retains only 25% of what it hears if it's told to it or if it hears it twice. This is what it means. If you listen to my Sunday morning message and you go out and buy the tape immediately afterwards and listen to it again, like that happens you'll remember at best 25%. So if you hear a study like that Sunday and another one Wednesday and four, five, six different ones during the week, how much are you really going to pick up? Why not take what has been studied and taught and now dig deeper and apply deeper and more concentrated? Then you're more apt to remember those principles and let them live. As you go on, don't worry, I'm almost done. Spiritual maturity, spiritual unity. Third is spiritual stability. Verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. What a metaphor. And be carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Spiritual stability. The more we dig deeper through the Bible, all the Bible and nothing but the Bible, you'll be a stable person. I believe that it's the Word of God that does the work of God. Or if you wanted to flesh that out a little bit more, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to do do the work of God in the life of a child of God. It's all tied to the Word. It brings spiritual stability. Number four... And this is where you come in. Spiritual activity will result. Spiritual activity will result. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Boy, doesn't that sound like a busy bunch of parts in a body. They're all active. They're all working. Okay, now 
Link that with verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, notice this, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Did you get that? You're supposed to do the ministry. I'm equipping you to do ministry. He said, wait a minute, you're the minister. You're paid to do the ministry. You got it wrong. I'm only to equip you to activate you to do ministry. Now you're going to notice a natural progression. The more we go through the Bible, the more you dig into the Bible like this, the more you're going to discover how to do it on your own. You'll study the Bible in such a way that you'll yourself be able to feel comfortable with any verse, any section of Scripture, be it poetry, history, biography, whatever. You'll, you'll be equipped to get into it yourself and apply it yourself. When you do, you're going to become so excited that you're going to want to start teaching people. And what I've noticed is this progression. Right now in my pulpit in Albuquerque, I have a young man, younger than I am so I can call him young, who came to faith when he was 16 years old. I had the privilege to lead him to Christ. I watched him be discipled. I watched him go through the Bible with us week by week for years. I asked him to join my staff. I brought him into my heart. I discipled him and mentored him. He became a youth pastor. He went out and decided that he had a musical gift and formed a group called The Cry, and they traveled around the world and did evangelism. And then he came back and is pastoring the church in Albuquerque. Not only that, but dozens of people have left and started their own churches. They've gone through our school of ministry because they thought, this is cool going and listen to the Bible being taught, Skip, but I want more. I want to go to the school of ministry that you have. And so there's all these different levels and layers where people are launched all over the world. That, to me, is the exciting part. Because John said, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the truth. And that is the payoff, is the spiritual activity. So I'm going to train you, and you're going to do the ministry. Deal? And this is how it works. This is how it works. You're going to notice things that are in the church that need to be done. You say, you know, I've noticed that we have a real need at this church for this ministry or that ministry. I go, great. I agree. You're called, man. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm called. Yeah, you're, you're the one that has the heart. You're the one that saw the need. I think we ought to pray and we'll get you together with one of our pastors who can oversee that and help mentor you in that. And guess what? You're in the ministry. That's how people, almost all of them, got to be on my staff in Albuquerque. I didn't go hire out some seminary, whatever. I just saw them being raised up from the group. It's the body of Christ. And every body, local body, has all the gifts needed. Every gift needed to do what this church needs to do is here in this body. It doesn't mean that others won't move, perhaps, and come in, and the Lord will add them to the body, but all of the gifts, I believe, are in the body of Christ. Well, we want to break up and we want to pray like we did last week. And this prayer isn't just uh, an addendum, just, oh, yeah, let's pray for a few minutes too because we should. I truly believe the church marches forward in prayer. Did you know that when we first started our little study back in New Mexico, 
people ask me, well, Skip, now that you've got this room full of people, of 125 people, now what do you do? And I had to say, I don't know. So let's get together every week and we'll pray and ask God what he wants us to do. And from that birth, that work of future planning. So church, let's march forward on our knees. We'll break up in groups. Uh, once again, uh, give room for everybody to pray. Uh, prayer, pray from your heart. Popcorn prayers, I call them. Short, sweet, to the point. Don't hog up all the prayer time. Don't try to impress anyone with your eloquence because God didn't impress and you're talking to him anyway. And, uh, and then we'll all close in worship. I'll close this in a prayer and we can hang around a fellowship. Shall we?